For the Transportation Security Administration, what happens in Vegas certainly does not stay there. TSA recently opened a new officer training center near the Las Vegas airport, and new hires trained there take their knowledge all over the country. We got an update from TSA's Assistant Administrator of Training and Development, Kim Hutchinson, who spoke to Federal News Network's Tom Temin. So this grand opening was the second of two training centers, correct? That's right. We've got two big training centers that host our training for our newest employees, what we call our basic training program. All right. And tell us about the basic training program for TSOs, transportation security officers. It looks kind of simple when you see them externally, but there's a lot going on there, isn't there? Absolutely. Yes. So you can imagine it's a pretty intense training program. It really does take place over the course of a new hire, a new transportation security officer's maybe first six months on the job. So we kind of chunk it out in a couple parts. So it really actually starts at your local airport, which we call phase one. And that's where you really kind of, you know, you get your uh, airport ID and you really learn about what's going on locally. You do some training on some of the technology, but really not the advanced stuff. Once you've mastered that, and let's say uh, two to three months time, you go to one of TSA's academies, and that's the TSA Academy West, the new one we're talking about today. Once you do that, again, you've got another three weeks in training. The first week actually happens at your home station, but it's piped out of our academy. So it's taught by instructors, just like we're talking now in a WebEx setting. And that's where really we talk a lot about what it means to be a TSA employee, what it means to be a DHS employee, the culture of TSA, because you can imagine some of our newest offers didn't experience 9-11. So we want them to understand, you know, why their job is so critical in protecting the traveling public, what our mission is and so on. And they kind of preview some of the procedures. And then right after that, that week at that local airport, they head to either TSA Academy West which is located um, very close to Las Vegas Airport, or TSA Academy East, which is in coastal Georgia, um, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. So it really kind of depends on where you live, what training center you go to, even though you could go to either one. But uh, generally, we started up the West Coast Training Center to be more convenient for our employees coming like from, say, the islands, from California. You can imagine it's a really long trip to get to coastal Georgia from, say, Guam. And we really wanted our officers to be ready to experience this really intense training program. So I think it really gets to, you know, the convenience for our employees as well as just kind of student ready readiness. And at the uh, regional training centers at Training Center West, then it's residential. They're there and living there for the duration. They sure are. They're living in a hotel. They're all together for two weeks. Got it. And it sounds like from the way you describe the basic training there's as much human relations and cultural inculcation as technical. Because when you think about it, TSOs, really, their toughest job is human relations. Absolutely. I think to really be a good TSO, like in many other jobs, you have to be a great communicator. And many times you don't really have a lot of knowledge on what's going on with that passenger before they hit the checkpoint, right? So you're going to experience all kinds of passengers. You're going to experience, you know, the business, seasoned business traveler who's been through that airport a million times. You might be experiencing a first-time traveler. It might be a teenager or a grandparent that hasn't gotten on a plane in a while. So really what we teach at the academies is how to deal with every possible passenger you receive, you know, at your checkpoints. And how versatile do you want TSOs to be? I'm thinking, you know, just as a flyer like everybody else, visible to the public, there's at least eight discrete functions you know, between the time you arrive until you get on the plane. But there's a lot that goes on you don't see, correct, in the offices, in the byways and labyrinths of the airports. 
That's right. And really, I think you have to kind of take on that role of TSO when you walk in the door, when you get out of your car or your bus from the airport, right? People are always, you know, engaging officers to say, well, where do I do, where do I go? Or what can I bring on the plane? Or do I have to check my bag? So it's, it's almost, you know, beyond your job at the checkpoint. It really does include all those pieces. So I think that's another piece to the Academy West where our officers are actually training in a checkpoint right next to a live checkpoint. So it's not some kind of a simulated classroom environment. You're literally, you know, you're hearing the airport announcement and noise while you're learning these these functions, which is much more, you know, realistic training environment to what your job's going to be. We're speaking with Kim Hutchinson. She's Assistant Administrator and Chief Learning Officer for the Office of Training and Development at the TSA. To what extent are officers taught where they can use discretion? And here's what I mean. A thing goes through the scanner and there's lots of pictures of stuff. And obviously, if you see a pistol in there, well, you know, that raises the red flags and the person's arrested, et cetera, et cetera. But there are things that are not so clear cut. We've all experienced that use of discretion by officers. How do you teach them that particular skill? I think it starts with understanding the standard operating procedures, right? There are certain things you have discretion on and other things that you don't. My answer to that would be, you know, you do have a big network of people at the checkpoint. So if you're a new officer, say, coming out of training and you see something that you don't think it's a prohibited item, but you're not sure, you know, that's where we really teach this piece about you're part of a bigger team, right? So we really do want officers to focus on threats, obviously, and if they're not sure, to make sure that they engage other passengers. So there's discretion in some regards, but, you know, at the end of the day, SOB has to be followed. You've got a bunch of people around you to kind of help you get through the process. And describe the new facility in Las Vegas. Where is it in relation to the airport and what's in there? Is it mostly just spaces with desks and tables or what? It's a very modern looking building from the outside. It's 26,000 square foot facility. It's got six classrooms. It's got a couple of you know large multi-purpose rooms. It's got office space for our officers. And really, I think that one of the neatest things about this facility is you can literally see the airport, the tower of Las Vegas airport when you're in a training room. So you can walk. I don't recommend that, especially this time of year, you know, but it's such a very close proximity. It's less than a mile from the airport. So I think that's another compelling thing while you're sitting there learning about what it means to be a TSO. You can literally see planes taking off and on, which we haven't experienced that at a training center before. So it's really kind of magical having all those pieces come together at the Academy West. Yeah, it's more interesting than that pyramid-shaped hotel that's kind of right there almost (laughs) at the end of the runway, I would say. I'd rather see planes than a pyramid-shaped hotel. (laughs) And is there testing throughout the process? In other words, do you have like uh, bags made up of sample items and see if they catch things and they're graded on that? Yes, absolutely. So just like any other, you know, classroom portion of training, you do have um, a couple of different tests. So our officers at the end of the two weeks, they go through a job knowledge test just to make sure they understand, you know, all the procedures, all the things they need to do um, when they're doing this job. And then there's an image test. So one of the core things we teach is x-ray. We spend a very good portion of this time looking at simulated images on a computer like we're on now, but also looking at images um, at these uh, real life checkpoints. You also have to take an image test, and uh, if you need, you know, some assistance, we've got some remedial training on the ground. And then after you go through the two weeks, you go back to your your, um, home airport, and you will then really more integrate on the particular um, equipment that you have at your airport and then take one final image test before you, you know, get certified as a TSO. So there's testing along the way. Yeah, it's interesting because the uh, screening machines are kind of like rental cars. No two are precisely alike. I mean, there's a bunch of different models of these things. And when new technology comes in, 
say, yeah. some of the body scanners that, you know, that obfuscate the human being but show what's in the pockets and so forth. How does that training get spread throughout the whole system as those machines get deployed? Yeah. So from, you know, the basic standpoint, we always try to have the latest equipment in our training checkpoints. So if you come from an airport that has this brand of CT, that is the CT that you will be trained on at, at the academy. So that's a wonderful thing. Now it's a little different when it, you know, shows up at your airport, essentially, you know, when we know when airports are going to get, so it's Las Vegas airport is getting a new machine, you know, AIT, CT, whatever that may be. That's when um, our officers get trained basically by trainers at the airport. All right. And just a final question. Throughout a shift of a TSO, do they do mm-hmm. the same thing for the entire time or do they shift from, you know, screening the people into the screening area, you know, checking the, the uh, boarding pass, et cetera, to watching what's going through in the scanners to whatever? Or do they rotate throughout the different jobs in a given shift? They do rotate. So um, you might start at that travel document checker where they look at your IDs and then move to the walkthrough move to divestiture. So yes, um, you know, basically every 20 to 30 minutes, an officer will take on a different position. So that's just one of our challenges at the academies to really getting our officers confident and the expertise to do all of those things that you described. That's Kim Hutchinson, Assistant Administrator and Chief Learning Officer for the Office of Training and Development at the Transportation Security Administration. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Fly with the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. uh, And that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. 
it's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Um, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast a vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, the, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came 
do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief in my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.